So folks, thanks for joining us today on Leadership Blog, which is a podcast for the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center community on topics of interest. And the topic of interest today is learning something about OPSEC. So uh, we've got some experts assembled for us uh, to help guide us through these topics. Uh, we'll ask everybody to introduce yourselves. Uh, Jeff, could, can we start with you? Yes, sir. Hey, good morning, and thank you for having me today and, and everyone on the panel. Uh, name is Jeff Jaggers. I'm the Information Protection OSF and Director of Information Protection for PEO Digital. Uh, brief background, started in the Air Force almost 30 years ago as a signals intelligence in, uh, enlisted individual and progressed through Palace Acquire in the OIDO career field. And here I am today, years later. So thank you again. Mm -hmm. And Patrick. Uh, good morning, everybody. Again, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, it's always good value to be able to talk about OPSEC. My name is Patrick Dolan. I am the Chief of Security for the B-52 Weapons System, America's premier bomber. And I started out uh, similarly uh, almost 40 years ago now this year uh, with the uh, U.S. Naval Reserve, then went active duty Air Force Security Forces, then shifted to the command and control career field. And uh, from subsequent to that, uh, became security 0080, uh, where I progressed in career from uh, working at places such as AFIT, AFRL, and now LCMC. Okay. Uh, Mark. Yes, hi. My name is Mark Collins. I am the AFMC Operations Security Program Manager. Uh, my career started in 1983 in the Air Force Security Forces. Uh, retired in 06, did, uh, worked at USAFE as a uh, government uh, uh, program security officer with respect to SAP programs until 2018. Took a few years break, came to AFMC and took the job as the operations security program officer. Okay. And Haley. Good morning, everyone. My name is Hallie Filson. Thanks for having me on the line today. Um, I'm a Palace Acquire intern about a year and a half into the three-year program, and my first rotation when bombers, I worked largely in OPSEC, and now I work um, at the Rapid Sustainment Office in Program Protection Planning. Okay. Uh, so let's start off at the beginning. Uh, I mean, just explain what OPSEC is and where it came from, and, and Jeff, we'll, we'll go with you to start. Yeah, I mean, I'll give the origins first, you know, and I think operation security as a concept is probably as old as time, you know, whenever people had something of interest to protect, OPSEC was probably there. And, you know, just locally speaking at Hanscom in Massachusetts, you know, Paul Revere probably was a known OPSEC practitioner at the time, just didn't have the name for it. And you could actually say that red coats were probably the first critical indicator of something that we were observing at the time. Uh, and then you obviously we evolved into Second World War, where you, you hear the famous loose lips sink ships and you think of Patton's ghost army where deception and OPSEC were combined to to ultimately, you know, deceive an adversary. And then as we move forward to the, uh, the Vietnam War, we're jumping kind of fast, but the distinct things in OPSEC's history when we were losing, ironically, B-52s at a high rate over North Vietnam and uh, they were tasked to figure out why that was happening, and they really started getting into the ComSec monitoring and, and uh, you know, determining where we were losing information and why the enemy was able to be uh, successful. And that's when we heard that first coinage of Purple Dragon, um, and there's actually some interesting literature on that historically. But I think really when you, when you look at the crystallization and the formalization of OPSEC, it really comes to 1988, where President Reagan issued and I hope I get this right, National Security Decision Directive 298, and that literally 
implemented or directed federal agencies to create a formal OPSEC program. And then, of course, we evolved from there, from the Gulf War to the conflicts in recent time uh, with the integration of social media and, and how to figure that out to, to where we are today, ultimately, um, with how to, uh, you know, educate, adapt, and, and keep OPSEC relevant. And really, the, the book answer of what it is, is it's a five-step process of, you know, identifying critical information, you know, coupling that with threats, vulnerabilities, assessing risk, and then applying countermeasures. And I think that's deceptively easy in definition because a lot of people don't understand that it's a peripheral kind of protection concept that it is, it is not stagnant. It is very flexible. It is highly environmentally relevant to what you're doing and what is sensitive to what you particularly are doing. Um, no, it may not deal with classified, but it certainly deals with sensitive information and indicators that will enable an enemy or an adversary or even a competitor in modern terms to be successful in diminishing our operations or mission success. Mm -hmm. And so kind of a lot there, but that's kind of the evolution and basic concept of what OPSEC is as a security discipline. And, and there's a lot of examples um, of you take seemingly harmless information from a number of different sources, you meld that together and suddenly you've revealed something that could be significant. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, you know, in one of our old training models, we literally had a puzzle in different puzzles, you know, had, you know, a haircut, a, a recall roster. And if you piece it together, you can get ultimately a deployment schedule and destination. Absolutely. Think of it as puzzle pieces and every, you know, and, and you think, you know, everyone that contributes or a very large center and everyone that does their part to mitigate those pieces from getting out uh, mitigates the success of an adversary analyst of piecing together a larger, a larger uh, piece of information, if you will. Yeah. 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 I mean, it just teaches you to, to know that, you know, even little simple things you might think is not, a, not a big deal, but, but together it can be a big deal. So. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we've been dealing with this COVID situation now for, I don't know, how long? It seems like forever now, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, we've been doing this teleworking and stuff. I mean, I, you know, um, and, and that had to present some real challenges to OPSEC, uh, you know, having employees working from home and doing things like this. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, the OPSEC challenges in, in today's environment. Uh, Patrick, do you want to do you want to address that? Yeah, I can talk to about it a little bit. Um, with regards to that, what we first found as a challenge was what could we use to do certain uh, discussions, be it unclassified, uh, on our uh, systems. And interestingly enough, uh, around the same time that we started implementing the lockdown type strategies, uh, the Air Force uh, DoD at wide instituted the controlled unclassified information uh, regime, if you will, from the DOD directives on down and then through Air Force as far as how we had to adapt to it. So what ended up happening is, is now we just thought, well, okay, FOUO is what we were doing. Oh, now we have to do CUI, but can we do CUI over our uh, systems, over our networks? And what we found out was that there's a lot of, if you will, determinants by different agencies and organizations within the government from NIST to DOD to 
uh, various other entities um, on how we go ahead, National Institutes of Standards, by the way, and NIST is, uh, how everybody looks at things. Uh, for example, we had the FedRAMP system. And so it said, okay, FedRAMP, is it good for CUI? Is it not good for CUI? So us and our IT partners and the community, the acquisition community as a whole had to go ahead and try to find these these, uh, these technologies or systems uh, like what we're doing here, zoom.gov, that didn't even exist uh, mm -hmm. to go ahead and discuss information that was at a, if not classified, obviously we had those systems uh, though nobody had them at home, but we did have uh, capabilities uh, in the classified realm, but how do we go ahead and discuss CUI in this type of work environment and what things do we have to watch out for? Turning off our uh, our browsers, making sure that we're using uh, the most updated um, software on our machines, pushing software pushes, uh, determining again, for like I said, the FedRAMP, what could be CUI, what could not. So that was the uh, that was a major challenge right off the bat when we went into this uh, lockdown telework uh, setup. Yeah. Um, so now, are there any any unique um, challenges between like um, uh, like a hybrid schedule where you've got people that are sometimes in the office, or maybe some of the some of the team is in the office, some of the team is not, um, versus like full time telework. I think in, in our case, um, there usually is not too bad with a full-time telework, uh, as long as the individual has the system set up. Uh, we uh, do a full-time telework package for individuals like that. Uh, for example, my uh, deputy for the uh, engine replacement program on the B-52, he's full-time telework, and I was just working with him last night on some PII information. Uh, so we had to make sure that we were on the appropriate system. Uh, at least it's system or, or if you will, program a lot of it. Uh, again, we went since we've been the 365 teams, that's been an update uh, to allow some of us to do those type of work. But I think um, as far as the scheduling, most everybody has a, a, a good idea of when they're supposed to be working, when they're not. Supervisors have been empowered by, in, in my case, my senior military leader, um, senior material leader, sorry, um, Colonel Rochetta to go ahead and, and decide when you need your people in as much, or as maybe you can go ahead at least uh, to two days in, um, but not be where they're less full-time teleworking unless they have an approved package. Yeah. So uh, it, again, a lot of it is, is construct and willingness of individuals to go ahead and make sure that uh, they come in if their system isn't working uh, and get it worked on or, uh, say, hey, I've got to go ahead and, and come in because I've got something else to do. So that, uh -huh. uh, that's been some challenges, but again, through leadership and cooperation, uh, we can overcome them. And Mark, you have something to add on that? Yes, I wanted to add that I find that you know, the environment is one of the biggest uh, factors to consider with respect to uh, uh, um, information no longer is discussed in a government facility amongst government people on government systems or on the telephone within a government environment. Now you're in your home environment in an apartment. Uh, you have families, friends, and others, maybe maintenance people around, and you are no longer, and you're discussing information on the telephone, you're just, your computer's open, and it's not necessarily protected from the family. Uh, that's one of the biggest 
the challenges I think that we should consider with respect to you know working in a hybrid, remote, or any teleworking environment is that we lose the uh, the ability to have a protected environment of, uh, solely. Uh, you know, normal office chatter is now done on home landlines or on cell phones, which again is not protected, not monitored with respect to uh, what the government used to do in the past. Uh, I think that's vitally important. Um, so, and then on top of that, just physically bringing documents and things home that you need that may be cooey, uh, yep. maybe unclassified cooey, uh, obviously unclassified cooey, but that, that, that information is now no longer in a government facility is open to uh, an exposed environment and it puts that information at risk. Yep. Jeff, uh, you got something to add? Yeah, I, if I could, and those are excellent points because those are always the you know the backgrounds and everything that we have to worry about. But I think the interesting thing, telework has actually probably enhanced OPSEC because it's dispersed us. So if anyone potentially was watching patterns, they have a lot harder time now to watch uh, you know a, a grouping of people doing work. However, I think it's important to remember that most people are now coming in when they have specific meetings or even classified meetings. And individually, you're recreating new patterns that in, in essence could be an indicator of, of the value of your meeting because you routinely now telework. So I think that's what I meant originally. You have to be adaptive in this. If you believe there's something monitoring, you you're always uh, breaking and reestablishing patterns. And those in OPSEC terms are, are indicators of something that someone may find of interest or value. So certainly uh, this has pushed us into a, a realm where electronic systems are now much more important. Uh, Haley, could you address it a little bit about how we secure those systems? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, uh, when I worked under B52, under Pat, who's on the line, and with the guidance of Mark Collins, also on the line, and um, <laughs> under direction from Colonel Rochetta, our unit employed um, an electronic security system assessment, also called an ESSA. And it was an opportunity to use resources that are available to us when approaching this new environment. So this was a monitoring mission that is submitted through the 16th AF, but the actual monitoring is done by the 68th NWS Network Warfare Squadron. And they are fantastic and super communicative and very easy to talk to. But um, it was essentially, we deployed what was called uh, email monitoring. So monitoring email communications, and we specifically chose two units in B-52 um, being the radar modernization program, RMP and sustainment, um, to be able to look at what the email communication looks like on the day-to-day, -day, understand how people communicate under electronic systems, um, how people gauge and utilize OPSEC in these systems. Um, and also it contributes data when you're talking about risk analysis and things like that. So. We employed this ESSA and we submitted um, to the 68th NWS our SIL, our OPSEC plan, and an email keyword list. Um, and the keyword list would automatically filter emails that would then be analyzed by 68th NWS analysts. And we talked to some subject matter experts in RMP and sustainment about what sort of terminology kind of is the conglomeration of critical program information, critical components and acquisition, because we wanted to make sure that we're really adjusting and capturing what acquisition and OPSEC looks like together. And at the conclusion of this mission, we got um, lots of specific examples of emails that were sent 
um, maybe from personal computers or um, maybe specific communications that even though the information wasn't cooey, it maybe should be, we should talk about how to protect it better and maybe it shouldn't just be unclassified and things like that. And then the 68th NWS gave us a summary report of specific things we can do to improve our unit. And so given all of these wonderful tools that were provided us through this monitoring mission, our unit was able to have a discussion unit-wide, get everyone involved and say, this is what we see when we communicate through these electronic systems. Let's reframe how we think about how we talk about OPSEC and security and these things. So being extra cautious and considering um, even though it's not classified or even though it's not cooey, what sort of interpretation can we get from this and being able to do other workarounds like using DOD safe, which is a great option to communicate with um, people who do and do not have a CAC and engaging in a conversation with industry of even though you may not have certain encryption capabilities, let's still make sure we're accounting for OPSEC. So it's very running a, using resources like that is really helpful in making sure that we're really understanding everything when it comes to communicating in electronic systems. So that's an interesting way where, I mean, actually, that's an improvement. I mean, you're enhancing our, our, our overall security by using uh, these electronic systems or by monitoring them as we as we migrate more and more to electronic systems. What are what are some other ways that we can uh, make OPSEC better? Um, and, and Jeff, we'll go back to you. Yeah, I, I think better is a, is a, a tough thing. Um, I really think we have to work on the fundamentals of re-educating the future and, and, and generations that uh, leadership involvement is critical. It's it's not a security thing. It's it's inclusive of all of us. It requires all of us as a culture to understand it. Um, and I and I think you know, like the the ESA example, you know, we the, the struggle is bringing rural world application and bringing it home in non-attributional manner to say, hey, look it's not just shred, it's not just this, it's a lot more complicated and potentially harming or damaging if we don't do it right. And so I think continuing to drive on that and continuing to bring everyone involved from the top down and, and the bottom up uh, is, is always gonna be our struggle as generations come and go and as people move on. And I think if we, if we can get those two consistently, um, we would improve OPSEC overall. Yep, and Mark? I just want to add to that uh, that point that I mean to say less uh, is would help like what Haley was talking about the fact that we send information to our uh, our personal computers to our email to our uh, phones so we can have it readily available uh, is a, a major problem so to to say less uh, to practice a bit of need to know with respect to who needs to know this information and what are they going to do with it uh, is it going to contribute to them materially? So to have that sort of concept with respect to information, uh, to think OPSEC, to plan, like Jeff was talking about, to plan from cradle to grave with respect to including an operational security professional in the, from, the, from the beginning to the end of, of processes, test plans, operational plans, uh, to think about those things. And to, to, with respect to talking less, with respect to public affairs and even our commanders, uh, when we have tests that when we have tests, do we need to you know broadcast the test? Uh, and then how much information do we need to share about the test, whether it was success or success or failure? Uh, did we reach, reach milestones? Uh, all that is is important in protecting us operationally. So I just want to add that to what Jeff was talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. So let's, uh, let's, let's migrate over to um, <clears throat> like unit social media, uh, SharePoint pages, things of that nature. Um, what are, what are some ways with, within those systems that we can verify that OPSEC uh, measures are in place? And uh, Patrick, let's start with you. Well, first off, you need to make sure that you have a social media policy. Um, so we follow basically down through LCMC, <clears throat> through our organization and the directorate um, to make sure that individuals understand what they should be doing social media and what they shouldn't be doing. We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, there's people that, you know, Facebook, Instagram, a uh, whole other slew of different things. Uh, there's message boards people go to. There's a lot of different Twitter um, areas where basically it goes back to the education of individuals knowing um, what they should talk about, what they shouldn't talk about uh, on those platforms. Um, so as far as like SharePoints, uh, you make sure that you have your domains correct. Again, if, if, you're, if you're serious about OPSEC, you have to know your IT folks. Uh, you know, in our case, it's the Mission Information Systems for our directorate. Um, also, uh, we need to make sure that individuals know that certain devices could be of uh, a security risk. Everybody probably is pretty much aware these days about TikTok and the controversies around that. So again, that's one of those things where in social media, members need to be aware of these uh, possibilities of a uh, social media uh, company entity uh, maybe not having the best interests of, of the United States at hand ourselves, or again, a lot of it is coming from uh, foreign sources. And one thing else to add to that, um, which we haven't really I've talked about, and, and, and Hallie was good about this when she was doing the, uh, the assessment, working with it, is that we've determined a lot of our mission partners, our contractor partners, uh, may need to make sure that their security is uh, up to snuff as far as systems and looking at OPSEC. Uh, the National Industrial Security Program has OPSEC in it. However, there's possibilities where in a contract, uh, you can levy more OPSEC um, measures in it. Um, so we can't, especially as AFL-LCMC, we cannot not think about our industry partners and just push it to the side. We have to be actively engaged. So as you said, SharePoint, share filing. Uh, for example, I work with Boeing. Boeing has a system called Message Courier where they've gone ahead and encrypted it. And we have an Exostar encryption system that we go through to go ahead and pass things. So that's another situation where we work with our partner, find a way to go ahead and get the information, but also to protect it. And, and that's critical because OPSEC um, is kind of thought of maybe an operationally, uh, but acquisition OPSEC, as we as we found out, is it allows uh, our adversaries to get in that much closer, uh, that much earlier on our systems. I mean, if you have to try to defeat a system when it's fielded, that might be more difficult when you can try to defeat it while we're developing it. So that's the uh, key uh, component for OPSEC that our workforce needs to understand and our industry partners and how we go ahead, research partners, uh, institutions of higher learning that we work with, all are part of it where they have information that we need to protect so that that nugget, that those, as we talk about the puzzle pieces come together, one puzzle piece from say a higher, a higher learning uh, uh, research facility coupled with a contractor, 
coupled with two locations in the Air Force gives that adversary some vital information about one of our future systems. And so, you know, a lot of people is in their day-to-day lives, they use social media to kind of communicate with friends or stay engaged with families, especially a lot of times members will deploy. They might want to get messages back to their home, you know, to let the family know that they're okay. But, but some of those things, some of those can be an issue if you're putting that out in the public domain. Is, is that right, Jeff? Yeah, that is absolutely correct. And and you got to think of deployments as your your physical security and your security and death getting weaker because you're moving towards potential adversaries. So you absolutely have to be careful. Um, and, and one thing just to tag on the whole concept of social media, you know, you have to take a perspective of an adversary. I mean, we we're required to do vulnerability assessments on our own websites that face to the public to make sure we're not posting critical information. But there are just endless amounts of ways that data is leaving, whether it's through the SAM website or our official websites or individuals communicating from a deployed location. And so we always tell people, you know, it's one thing to think of it in terms of what we value, but you have to look at it through the eyes of an adversary and think how they can use it to hurt you and deployments, mm-hmm. especially uh, because, you know, everything is sensitive and that ties into technology you know how are you using cell phones in a deployed location and getting giving away locational data your background photos take on a new meaning and so everything you do in a deployed location takes on a whole new context of operation security yeah yeah it's interesting you know i was recently on vacation and i took a selfie with my wife and a friend immediately figured out where we were at just by looking at the background and recognizing it and you know the background for the most part was kind of blurry but but she was able to figure it out as soon as I posted that thing. So it's, yeah. it, it's something you don't really think about, but. No, it's like, it's like anything. If you buy a new car, you, you should learn how to drive it before you operate it. And if you get into a social media device and you don't know how to set the right standards of privacy and, 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 and keep at adapting as the pushes come out to update it, you're operating in the blind and someone's going to exploit that. And, and yeah. it's not what you see. It's what's happening behind the things that experts know how to exploit to extract that metadata, et cetera. Um, I, I remember reading about a, an, there was an app that runners were using and it tracks where they run. Okay. And so after it's done, then it would post a map of, of what route and how fast they ran it and how, what the distance was and everything. But it also explains, for a deployed person, it showed the like the perimeter of the base that he was on, you know, because he was running around inside the fence line. And so you knew exactly where the fence line was by seeing that posting. And, you know, uh, Mark, is, is there anything else you can think of that uh, people should be aware of on their own personal social media sites? Yeah, I mean, initially think about what's the purpose of the site? What, what are you trying to provide to people? What information do you think you need, they need to know? Uh, they need to look at it from an identity theft perspective. Think about what could be stolen from that information that you're posting. Think about if you're putting your, your maiden names down, family names, friends, pre-post actual location movements, like you mentioned, pictures uh, on these sites. Uh, you know, people use uh, scroll and uh, troll these sites to see if folks are gone on vacation, to see if it's a good time to steal from them. So there's you have to look at it like uh, Jeff said from the adversary perspective to see what you're posting and how the information can be used against you as you post that information. So I just wanted to add that to you. 
so we talk about critical information indicator list, SILs. Um, I think it used to be called something else. Um, but um, uh, Patrick, let's let's go to you. Uh, what is what is the SIL list? What what's what's like the kind of data that's on there? Well, SIL lists uh, they can be very broad as far as organizational mission, and then they can go down into very minutia that can go ahead and uh, maybe indicate something to an adversary. Um, in the case where we were talking about earlier with the ESSA, the with that, that Halley did. Um, she had to go in depth with each of the two organizations that were selected by leadership and find out what were those CIA, what, what, what CIALs and what was the most critical information that we needed to protect. So when doing so, she was working with engineers, program managers, uh, the slew of people. I mean, there can be things in finance. There can be things in contracts that people don't even think about. You could find out, for example, um, that the money that you're spending on a certain particular item could be an indicator of what type of uh, capability that you're obtaining. Uh, adversaries can get that uh, detailed if they get that information. They can go to that level and say, okay, based upon previous information that we've, that's been revealed, say, in another source, maybe uh, the whole on the West Coast, uh, they found this out and they go ahead and determine we're probably using somewhat similar solutions. Uh, so you have to have a broad-based crew of people, uh, to use the lack of a better term, your whole crew working together to go ahead and develop it. It's not just something security can do. It's not just something your program manager can do. You need your engineering, again, finance, PK, all your uh, your 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 skill sets that are involved, your, your POE folks, your uh, personnel that are working logistics, can't forget that part because then again, talking about parts, uh, they, they have a lot of information that they're uh, going ahead and putting out, for example, on failure rates, mean time between failures. Is that an information I item that we need to go ahead and protect simply because now our adversary maybe can calculate our mission readiness ratings. So as you can see, it's kind of like you um, you look at it and you look at it some more, and then you look at it some more, and you try to go ahead and, and go down into the depths of, of, of what's going on. So I think that uh, that's a real key indicator in the acquisition community. I think a lot of times we're taking more from the operational community and saying, okay, that's what we have, but we need to really look at it from the operate from from not from beyond the operational into our acquisition battle space, because we are you know war fighters in the acquisition battle space. And uh, that needs to mean, mean that we have everybody on board looking at uh, what could be uh, advantageous for the adversary to obtain. Yeah, so I, that's a great point. I mean, that's really why OPSEC has to be everybody's responsibility. You can't just leave that to the security professionals uh, because a lot of times you don't have the, the, the basic, basic level of knowledge about that system to know what's important and what's not. Um, Jeff, is it, it, do you agree with that or? Oh, that is spot on. Yeah. And that's like, you know, again, it, it, you find out that it's more of an analytical, truly, you have to put a different kind of hat on than a security hat. And I, and I would say even expand it beyond that. If I was a bad guy watching, um, and I often use like in the, the, the historical follow the money, right? Because you, you, you know, watch where AFES is going, watch for supply, you, you, you extend out your peripherals mm. of 
protection that if I want to know where a base is going, I'm going to follow the the, con the construction pieces, all the all the things that typically wouldn't be considered, but but an intelligence source or someone from the other side, you know, would watch the patterns of. And we we have to tap into that to educate, and and we have to understand it in our programs because it's always going to be those extended out peripheral things that are the indicators that that only serve to refine if someone wants to target and come in close and find out more about something. It's those tip-offs, if you would. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's the best way to handle the situation when you have somebody that's not, uh, not doing the right thing? They're not practicing good, uh, good OPSEC. Um, how do you, what should individuals do? How should they engage? Uh, Mark, let's, let's start with you. Um, initially, to inform them that OPSEC is really a team sport that everyone needs to participate and that uh, we're only as strong as the weakest link. And you've heard that several times before in your life. Um, and that approach, that team sport approach is important because that particular person could, you know, damage, you know, a mission uh, or an operation plan. And once things are damaged, it's hard to, uh, to fix them back. Um, so that's initially how I would approach an individual to say, this is a, a team concept that mm -hmm. everyone has to participate in. Yeah. What about, uh, Patrick? Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough. Yeah. When, when you run into this situation, again, it's a lot of it's supervisory. Um, maybe you have an individual that is also stressed to meet deadlines, milestones. We have so many reviews and, and things that go on. Um, one approach that I've tried to use, um, especially uh, this goes back to being an Air Force Research Laboratory, especially kind of effective, but effective also in, in our business here at LCMC, is that you expound to the person and explain to them, yes, you're working so hard on this. Most people, I would dare say our workforce is so motivated to going ahead and achieving uh, you know, improvements at new systems to the warfighter. They get very focused on that. And you have to explain to them saying that if you go ahead and give away the keys to the kingdom before that fields, before that gets out to the warfighter, then you've compromised the warfighter. There's a saying in um, uh, the uh, defense contracts, uh, I'm sorry, defense counterintelligence security administration to uh, deliver uncompromised. And so what you have to explain to individuals that are having trouble adhering to OPSEC is you're delivering something compromised. All your hard work doesn't mean anything if the system is defeatable by our adversaries. Um, so that's kind of a, a point to, to, to hone in on uh, with individuals if they're having OPSEC challenges, uh, not doing the right things, posting on things. You know, Maybe they're trying to you know, say, hey, look what I've done maybe on social media or something, trying to, you know, maybe for a different position, maybe just for self-gratification, but to uh, appeal to that, that higher purpose, if you will, of making sure that that system gets to the warfighter and those individuals that are in that, uh, that aircraft or that, uh, that system uh, are not uh, endangered more than they have to be in their job simply because you were loose lips on it or you didn't care about it while you were doing the development that you were working so hard for. So that's kind of a, a tactic I've tried. 
And so, I mean, to kind of grow on that, you know, we talked earlier about people working from home. So there's more likelihood that, you know, your family members might see emails that you've got um, or they might see documents that you brought home to work on. Um, so how do you how do you deal with that as far as uh, family members to make sure that, you know, they're not going off somewhere and mentioning, you know, a project that you're working on or something like that. Uh, Jeff, let's go back to you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I got distracted. My phone was ringing and I was trying to <laughs> mute it at the same time. Um, can I have the question again, please? Yeah. Yeah. So we we're just talking about, you know, the case where more family, you might be bringing documents home and the family members might see some documents or they might see emails or, or they might hear you discussing something on a Zoom call, you know, that you're having from work. Um, so uh, so how do you deal with that as far as family members now? Well, and I think explicitly in the AFI for OPSEC, it, it, it talks about, you know, much like we have to extend the protection to peripheral, it, it actually talks about incorporating your family in the baseline education, if I'm not mistaken. And I think it's it starts with that. Hey, I'm going to be working from home. There is a potential for this. You may see this. Here's what I need from you. And here's why it matters, especially now that we're operating from home where you're now part of the protection equation as opposed to the challenge, you know, the, you're part of the solution as a part of the challenge. And I think that's always going to be the starting point. And then you have to set some ground rules, I, I think, that, that we have to compartmentalize ourselves. Um, you know, even me today, you know, I've never done a podcast. I'm not really good with technology, but I, I made a point to come into my office and not, not welcome whoever is potentially going to see this uh, into my living room. And so you have to ebb and flow um, but I think, you, you know, you can't be shy about business, right? You, everyone knows probably what you're doing anyways. You have to find a way to integrate and, and, and bring them into the, into the circle of, of trust, as they said in the movie, I believe, uh, to some degree. Um, and then you go from there. And then, and then a thing just like at work, you know, uh, you approach with empathy if mistakes are made and, and you explain why it matters. And I think you get in the long run more buy-in and understanding because uh, it takes all of us to, to do this. And I think in the future and in, in different contingencies that may face us, um, adapting to new things is going to require families to be involved uh, more so. Yep. Uh, so let's, let's discuss some countermeasures. So what are, what are some good countermeasures that you can do to practice good OPSEC? Um, and Mark, let's go to you. In the work environment, obviously, to encrypt your emails as necessary. Again, like I mentioned, practice needs to know. Know your audience that you're sending the information to, if they need to really have that information or not, uh, and if they're going to contribute you know, to the information as, you know, as, uh, as necessary. Uh, labeling the information properly and to ensure that the user knows what to do with it. Um, those are some initially some some good measures to use with respect to uh, to uh, countering information being sent out. Additionally, with the seal, you know the new seal, the new version of the seal, the format kind of lays out you know multiple ways. It, it initially says how information, what the enemy needs with respect to information, where would they get that information from, as a second item, and then the third would be. You know the countermeasures. You know, how do you stop the information from being lost? And again, like email encryption, shredding information, uh, and then various other ways, uh, depending on the types of information you're trying to protect. Yep. Uh, 
Patrick, can you add to that or? Uh, one thing I will note, uh, in fact, not too long before I came onto this this uh, podcast, uh, you have to also make sure the individuals understand the threat. So, for an example, an initiative we're doing here uh, under leadership uh, guidance and and working together with our intel uh, professionals is getting threat briefings for our workforce, for the entire workforce. Um, this also includes your AFOSI, who is in the counterintelligence business, um, because sometimes the workforce may be thinking, well, again, well, what does it really mean? Why do we, why do I have to DoD safe this thing? Why can't I just set an email open? What's the harm? Again, you can find out, again, the harm when you talk to your intelligence professionals, uh, your counterintelligence professionals, and they can kind of give the, that this is the uh, this is their adversaries, this is what they're looking for, uh, and you're involved in this. And that's kind of an eye-opener for people that may not realize that, oh, okay, I'm working on this part of this system, but that's a critical part of the system. And our adversaries would like to have that type of technology, one, to defeat the technology, and two, maybe to use it for their own weapon systems and then can go ahead and, and, and uh, create some mayhem on us as uh, mm -hmm. U.S. forces. So you can't remove the threat from that equation and uh, highly recommend people engage with AFOSI, CI, uh, their uh, acquisition intelligence professionals to uh, present threat briefings to their workforce uh, so we have a better idea of what we're up against. Yep. So uh, uh, next, I wanted to discuss a little bit about the, the public affairs process or the public affairs component with this, um, which is the security and policy review process for documents or information that we want to release out into the public. And of course, PA plays a role in that. Um, but one of the, uh, the key factors to that is, you know, typically in this, in this process, we have a form and we require three signatures on that form. Uh, one of them is the requester. All right. And one of them would be like the commander or his designated representative to sign off on it. But then the third signature on that is always got to be the OPSEC representative for that organization, you know, and it's got to be someone who's an OPSEC professional but it's got to be a person who's embedded into that program so that they understand, you know, the relationship between the program information and also the, the need for OPSEC security. Um, and and those, those signatures are required on our form before we'll even consider that information. Um, but, I, but I know one of the things that I always like to point out to people is, is that when you're pushing something out for security and policy review, you're releasing that to the world without any controls whatsoever. OK, and so you, you need to ask yourself before you do that, am I willing to share this information with my adversaries? Am I willing to give this to everyone? OK, without controls, because once it's out there, it's out there. OK, there's no taking it back at that point. So um, so have you guys been involved in this process as well? Uh, I, I would imagine reviewing documents or, th or things like that. Um, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely, and I appreciate you bringing this up because it's one of our it's one of our challenges, especially sitting at the directorate level when our PEO has a, a briefing to give. It's a it's a uh, an, an aggregation of divisional stuff, and we always are trying to stress that we need time. We need the building blocks to be assessed as they get built. because at the time they come up here, my brain, you know, I I, I may catch a majority of the stuff. 
but I don't know every SIL, I don't know every class guide, I don't, and so timing is critical. Uh, absolutely important that we're involved in the process because like you said, once it's gone, we can't pull it back. And, and we, we want to encourage people to also think they got to be very careful uh, with pictures. Uh, where are they acquiring pictures from and, and where are they acquiring certain data sets because if they're simply just internet searching things, as we know, there are things out there that we, we do not we do not want out there and they're not authorized to be out there. And so we, yeah. we were very key on finding the sources of where they're deriving stuff. And, and again, I think it was mentioned earlier, it still comes back much like the, the social media. There has to be an official driver to this uh, because it is a lot of effort and a lot of potential risk to release data. And if it doesn't serve an official purpose, it shouldn't be heading our way. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just think that they emphasize building blocks, earliest involvement at the lowest level as the things get, you know, combined. That, that's one of our challenges. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, and it's a discussion that we have a lot, especially recently, um, that just because you are authorized to release information, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it needs to be released, you know, because in some instances, it's just if there's not a reason to put it out there, then we just shouldn't put it out there. You know, um, I know I know in some instances on the acquisition business, you know, there's information that you've got to put out in order for, you know, if you're requesting bids on a, on a contract or something like that, you've got to give the contractors a little bit of information. But 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 you don't have to give them everything, you know, uh, Mark, go ahead. I just want to piggyback on what was said and just say one thing that I think we don't think about is compilation uh, throughout the years with respect to an acquisition program. We're putting out bits and pieces of information over a period of time, and we don't know when that when that tipping point will happen based on what we're releasing. And so and we don't have, as far as I know, I think I've asked this question a few times, a repository to see hey, what's been released over the years and how this thing is going to either add or detract or hurt you know, the effort of trying to protect information. Um, and so I just think compilation is one of the areas that we have to consider uh, before we actually release stuff as well. Um, so I think that pretty much brings us through all of our, all of our stuff. But uh, before, before we finish, uh, I just want to go around and see if there's anything that we left out or anything that you guys would like to, uh, to add back in. And we'll start with... Uh, with a uh, Hallie, is there anything I mean, to add? I have, I have nothing to add, but um, I do just want to say thanks again for having me on, and thanks again for everyone else. It's been really awesome to engage in a conversation with everyone across the um, AFLCMC. Thanks, uh, Mark. Yes, I want to say you know January is OPSEC Awareness Month. Um, the centers received an email from from me that came from the half. The half got it from OSDIS. Uh, OSUID, I'm sure I got that wrong. Uh, anyway, they have an email which basically uh, instructs them to provide OPSEC training uh, every week for this month. And so I just wanted to plug that again, that we're, we, we appreciate the centers taking the time to kick that information down to the wings and the units to uh, educate their populace with respect to protection of OPSEC information. Yeah. Uh, Patrick. Uh, we'd like to thank again for uh, being able to participate. I think it was a very good discussion. Um, the one only thing I would add would be for personnel, people themselves, just to kind of think about practicing OPSEC for themselves. I know we touched upon social media, uh, 
find out the settings and the social media settings for what you're working on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or wherever you're at. Find out what those security settings are. Don't do your geolocations. Uh, watch out pictures of, uh, of your children, um, where locations are at, like you mentioned, as far as behind you or where you're at there. Um, I think people need to sometimes do their own little OPSEC evaluation or assessment for their lives. And I think that would be uh, most beneficial because one, they get to learn how to practice OPSEC, which applies to our work area and to uh, help protect their families. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And, and Jeff. Yeah, no, again, thanks. And I, I would just say at a time where we are moving fast and, and poking innovation everywhere we can with tired brains, we have to slow down, think before we commit an action and, and use our, our challenges for our benefit. We are very large organizations now. And if just everyone understands that they have a piece to this, if they all contributed, we would diminish what our adversaries are getting. And so I would just conclude here, don't, don't undervalue what you know and see. Everyone has something of value to an adversary. And so just keep that in mind. Don't hypersensitize things but certainly ask us for help. It's, it's, we're in this together and we're, we're, we're all discovering new ways and adaptations to, to get through business the right way. And that's what we ultimately want to do together. Over. All right, well, again, folks, uh, thanks for joining us today on Leadership Log and helping us understand uh, better OPSEC and the importance for everyone to be involved in it. So thanks again.